Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 94, recorded September 5th, 2018. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Brian Aachen. Hey, Brian. How you doing? I'm doing really good. Yeah. yeah. You? Excellent. Doing very well. The sun is shining. Summer has not left us yet. It's not that great for productivity, but it's definitely good for uh, keeping the spirits up. Yeah. You know what else is keeping my spirits up? Is my uh, DigitalOcean servers, the ones running this, this site and, and many others. They've been working perfectly. So uh, they've been going really, really strong, and we'll tell you more about them later. But in the meantime, if you want to check them out, pythonbytes.fm slash digitalocean, get a $100 credit for new users. Brian, when I was in the C++ world, uh, the C-sharp world, design patterns were like this massive thing, and you had to know all the design patterns, and there was like dependency injection and IOC containers and all this stuff. And I feel like Python doesn't have as much rigor around it because it's you don't have to jump through so many hoops to make certain things happen i guess what do you think yeah i think so and i it's actually something that's interesting because i came from the c plus plus world so c patterns were a thing in c sharp also oh yeah okay well um the the i don't even know who the gang of four are but there were four authors that wrote the a design patterns book let's see eric gamma richard helm ralph johnson and I'm not going to try to pronounce that last one, John something. Anyway, in the, gosh, in the 90s, if you were in C++ or C Sharp, apparently you you read this book or or others around uh, design patterns. And then when I got into Python, I did, I was a little curious whether that was a thing in Python or not, but um, I haven't really heard much other than I haven't really needed it. A lot of this stuff isn't really needed. What I think is interesting is there's those patterns that you see from the Gang of Four and the sort of derivative ones, derivative books and, and thinking. And a lot of it, like you say, is not needed. But there are other patterns that are really useful and like come in, like, for example, meta classes, for example, or decorators. Oh, yeah. or there's other stuff, right? Generator methods, all sorts of stuff that is in here that don't appear in the Gang of Four because, you know, C++ or Smalltalk just didn't do that. They, they were highly based on Smalltalk, actually, their patterns. Right. Well, one of the things that um, caught my attention today was a tweet by, gosh, who's this Brandon by? Rhodes. Brandon Rhodes, yep. And he's doing, a, he's got a, a site called pythonpatterns.guide. And um, it has, he's sort of going through a lot of, a lot of different, um, I think he's going through the Gang of Four book, but he might be also doing other, pulling together other uh, design pattern uh, things that he's he's talked. Yeah, he's pulling together information from talks and writing, and I think he's creating more information too. But there are a whole bunch of uh, these, trying to apply some of these patterns to Python and kind of uh, sometimes different ways to do it. So you can do do things in different ways. And so far he's got abstract factory pattern the builder pattern, factory method, composite, decorator. Yeah, we definitely have decorators. And then things like uh, monkey patches and iterators, things like that. And how that applies, I'm glad that somebody that knows what they're talking about has tried to figure out how, how does this all apply in Python. And um, I haven't really dug too much into this. I just think it's a neat resource to try to read about some of these. Yeah, I definitely think it's a really neat resource. And Brandon has some interesting thinking on design patterns and architectures. He gave a super not counterintuitive talk called Clean Architecture. I think it was at Pi Ohio a couple of years ago. And when I first started watching it, I was like, I just disagree with everything you're saying. This just <laughs> seems so wrong. And then after 10 minutes, I'm like, but wait a minute, I think it's right. 
like I think I've been thinking about this all wrong, and it really, it really caught my attention because I, I didn't agree with it so much. But then I, I'm like, wow, this is really compelling what you're telling me. So maybe I need to rethink what I'm thinking. And whenever I have that feeling, I'm like, whoa, I need to pay attention because you know I, I might learn something really good here. Yeah, and I, yeah. So that's a that's a good point. I, I'm not necessarily saying I, since I haven't really dug through this too much. I'm not sure. I, I mean, I respect Brandon as a as a smart guy. I expect that there's some really great stuff in here, but you may not may not agree with all of it. So we'll try to dig up a link to that clean architecture too, because that sounds interesting. It's super interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's definitely a good yeah. one. Cool. Well, thanks for bringing this up. I, I love I love these Python patterns, and I love sort of the how would you know these traditional, more formalized patterns actually look in our language? And there's a lot of interesting examples there. Yeah. What do we got next? Well, we got this thing called Arctic. And Arctic is an API framework over top of MongoDB and Pandas. And the Ooh. idea is this is a, a, a thing that's been around since around 2012. And its sole purpose is analyzing time series data super fast. So one of their, like their headline is basically Arctic, millions of rows per second of time data in Python. Yeah. So that is really quite impressive. I can tell you a lot of the ODMs and ORMs and stuff, they don't do millions of records per second. So the idea is that it basically bakes in pandas and numpies and all those kinds of things. And it has an underlying data store that's backed by MongoDB. And it actually uses like the binary low level communication. So instead of trying to like store all the data and then bringing it back and deserializing each row, I think what it does is it actually just stores the binary data of pandas and it'll pickle like NumPy arrays and stuff like that and just exchanges like the memory structure and just pulls it straight back and go, yep, here it is. Let's look at it. And it's it's pretty cool. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot of applications that use um, just huge amounts of time series data. So Yeah, so they say the, the two big areas they think it's useful is IoT, little tiny IoT devices that, you know, maybe Python is running on and uh, financial analysis. So they're, you know, it's sort of been extracted out of the work that this um, financial company called Man, AHL, I've never heard of them, but I think they're mostly an Asian company, but also in the US around investment and so on. So they've been working on this and they actually have some numbers on how this thing performs relative to other types of projects that they pursued or other things that were available. So they talk about the different kinds of data that they store and analyze for stock trading and analysis. And they say, look, we have this sort of data that's for uh, one day, a whole bunch of it, um, maybe 10,000 rows, and they can work with those 10,000 rows in four milliseconds. And they say, compare that to what we were getting out of SQL Server, which was 2.2 seconds. So, you know, 500 times slower which is pretty incredible. And they have this other like tick data, like, you know, the stock ticker type of data. Yeah. They can say in one second, they can process 3.5 megs worth of that data in Python or 15 megs in Java. And there was some other uh, project that they were trying to improve over called other tick, which took like 40 seconds versus one. So really, really uh, interesting, high performance database backed time series. Mm -hmm. Neat. Yeah. So if you're into pandas, NumPy, and you got to store and query a bunch of time series, whatever the reason, this is probably worth checking out. And it's also tested with PyTest, which is pretty cool, right? Oh, well, of course. That's, uh, any, any real projects tested with PyTest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> of course. 
<laughs> so one of the things I really like about the Python community is the fact that there's so much sharing of information out of conferences and, and meetups and things like that. So we have a, another thing you found here for uh, PyCon, right? Yeah. So the PyCon, I don't remember when it was, but PyCon Australia wasn't too long ago. And they've already got the uh, all the videos up. And we have a link to the PyCon Australia videos. And um, I've got quite a few of them queued up that I'd like to listen to and watch. I'm I'm kind of bad about videos. I actually like I often just uh, listen to them and then go back and look at the slide parts of information that I wanted to capture. But I like listening to, to talks as well. But there's um there's one from Mark Smith, which he always amuses me because his Twitter handle is Judy Two K, and he won't tell me why. But uh, it's his talk is how to publish a package on PyPI, and that's the one I've watched so far. There's a lot of great talks there, though. But I think this one's a great one. That it it the end punchline is use cookie cutter, but he blasts through not using cookie cutter all the sort of stuff you have to do to get up. And you know, it's every little piece makes sense and it's not difficult. But there are a lot of different little pieces. But he goes goes through this entire thing in like less than half an hour, and so that's uh, pretty impressive to. Uh, watch him talk about all the different pieces and why they're there and what they're used for. So that's a good one to sort of understand what's going on in the packaging world in a very short amount of time. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, there's a bunch of cool ones here. A couple on MicroPython, actually. So one, writing fast and efficient MicroPython code. And the other is AsyncIO in MicroPython. Both of those are, are pretty cool. Uh, and kind of tie into what we were just talking about previously. Yeah, there, and then there's like, gosh, there's solid APIs and there's it looks like a real a lot of good stuff and I, I know that Australia's since it's big travel burden to other places other pycons there you'll you'll see some speakers there that you're not going to see other places so that's cool yeah absolutely and they have 88 videos so that's that's pretty solid yeah quite cool that's a good one uh, so before we move on I'll tell you about another cool thing DigitalOcean right so big fan and so one of the things that they've release, we talked about this just a couple of times, not very much, is this idea of projects. So when you go into your, you know, name your cloud provider, you might have a bunch of servers, a bunch of, you know, ESB storage type things, virtual storage blocks, load balancers, all sorts of stuff. And it's really hard to know what goes with what. Do you have a staging environment, a production environment, all that kind of stuff, right? So how do you organize that? So DigitalOcean has come up with this feature called Projects that lets you group things like your droplets, that's virtual machines, and floating IPs and back storage like spaces into these different use cases. So you know yeah, actually, we're done with this project, so we can turn that server off and destroy it and not like the fear of, I don't think we're using this one, but I'm not going to destroy it. I'm not going to delete it because what if I'm wrong, right? So a uh, very cool feature you can take advantage of for all of their stuff. Check them out at pythonbytes.fm slash DigitalOcean, and they'll give you $100 credit for new users. That's awesome. Hey, let's talk about another cloud provider. <laughs> right, on, <laughs> right on the back of that. So one of the ways that you can run your code on the internet is like I just described with DigitalOcean, like I do for our stuff, is to create some virtual machines and various other pieces and sort of use it as so-called infrastructure as a service, right? IaaS. But you might also use platform as a service, like here's my code, run it. So Google App Engine, Heroku, those types of things. Okay. So Google App Engine has a pretty interesting announcement, and it's interesting for both it's good now and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it was like that. So the announcement is that Google App Engine, 
has released their second generation runtimes, which the Python one is now based on Python 3.7. That's pretty awesome, right? It is. You want to run some code? Boom, here's my Python 3.7. So that's really good. You might think, oh, Michael, what was the previous one? 3.6? 3.5? No, I believe the previous one was 2.7. Oh, no. Until now. Like, if you were using Google App Engine, I believe you had to use a legacy Python, period. Until Yuck. that was like mid-2018 that I just said that. That wasn't like a statement around 2012 or something. That was just now. <laughs> but we'll let bygones be got bygones, and now it's Python 3.7, which is pretty awesome. So apparently, it's a pretty big upgrade. You get a bunch of new things. Like, for example, it's based on their new sandbox container, sort of Docker-like things. It removes a bunch of restrictions. Like, in addition to only running on the old Python, legacy Python, you could only use a white-labeled set of uh, packages. And now in the new Google App Engine, you can use arbitrary packages. Just put them in a requirements file, which is pretty sweet. That's a big change. It is a big, pretty big change. Yeah. So a lot of cool things like auto-scaling and things that are a little bit easier as well. So anyway, if you're interested in Google App Engine's platform as a service for Python, it just got many, many times better. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, yeah. So Brian, I typically write my code in Python files, not really in notebooks per se. Uh, how about you? Yeah, mostly in files. But I'm trying to learn uh, Jupyter Notebooks some and uh, utilize them there kind of fun, especially in data science realms or looking at plotting data and stuff. Notebooks are fun. Yep. But um, there was a person that uh, named Joel Groose that says he, he does not like notebooks. And Joel is notable because he's not like a random dude on the internet. But Joel Groose has written a book called Data Science from Scratch. He's done a lot of work in data science things like that. I've even had him on Talk Python many moons ago. Yeah, and this wasn't uh, just a like a one-off comment. He gave this talk at uh, JupyterCon and that's kind of hilarious. But the video for that is not available yet as far as I couldn't I couldn't find it. So because that was just recently or still going on, I'm not sure. But the the slides are up. He put the slides up and for one, puts me to shame. Of you know, this presentation has got so many animations and pictures and stuff. Plus, it's like I haven't even got through it yet. It's like a hundred pages long or more, but it's really good. But but it's a serious a serious uh, discussion about some of the issues with um, with the problems with notebooks that people new to notebooks don't quite get, and uh, people old to notebooks just sort of know it and don't really think about it anymore. And one of the big ones is that the there's hidden state and so like all and essentially we think of files as uh like you said we, we normally work in files so they they get run from top to bottom except for you know functions don't get run they get interpreted as functions and then when they are run they're run top to bottom essentially and notebooks are not like that you can jump around and execute different bits of code in different orders if you feel like it and uh, that stateness can lead to weird, confusing things. So it's just a, a gotcha to know about. And then it, he goes on to talk about some of the issues where if you start learning how to code with notebooks, you may end up you know, developing some bad habits like importing notebooks instead of just trying to... I mean, like that's a thing apparently you can do is you can define some functions in a notebook and then import them into another notebook. Well, 
I mean, wouldn't wouldn't it be better to just put them in a different library in a package or a <laughs> library? Use or the package, use the library, exactly. Yeah. So so some of those um and you know, I'm highlighting this not because I think notebooks are evil, but because I think it's it's important to start li- to to listen to people saying you know, listen to a voice that says they aren't a silver bullet. They have their they have their issues also, and we just need to be careful and talk and make sure you don't fall into those traps. Yeah, these are really interesting, and these are certainly issues to to look out for. And wow, this is a funny presentation. I cannot wait to watch this video, Joel. If you're listening, yeah. please let us know when it's out, or if someone else sees it come out, shoot us shoot us a note, either email or or Twitter, because this is fantastic. Yeah. Plus, also like. I can't even imagine how long it took to put together this presentation because it's, um, yeah, there's a lot of animations in there and it's, it's quite a riot. It is quite a riot. Yeah. Anyway, there's that just a, the other side of maybe new notebooks aren't awesome. Yeah. And it's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. So we've had uh, a couple of conversations around the various peps and stuff that have been maybe causing some kerfuffle in the community, uh, obviously the biggest one was was at PEP five seven two about the in place assignments, and that was the thing with all the stress around it. That Guido said, "Hey, after this, I'm I've, this is my last one. I've given my all. I'm I'm out of here. You guys, yeah. uh, it's up to you." We actually had Brett Cannon and Carol Willing on episode eighty seven to talk all about that, right? And one of the things that we talked about was what comes next, right? If it's not down to Guido to make the final decisions, which is how it has worked. How will the Python community decide, you know, what it's up to? So, yeah. yeah, So Barry Warsaw has published five peps at least around this. And I don't think this is a decision. It's sort of a structure to further the conversation and make a decision. So he just published not too long ago, pep 8,000, which is Python language government proposal overview. And I don't know if this is common in PEPs. I haven't seen it that much, but it's like a gathering of other PEPs that are specific details. So there's PEP 8001, 8002, 810, and 811. The first two are about voting and ways in which this government might work. And then the higher ones, the 810s, are actual proposed models. And there's a third one, an 812, that I forgot to put in the notes. And so there's... For the, the government styles, governance styles, we have the BDFL governance model is one of the proposed options, which is to elect a new person who is the final decider, right? Basically, Guido stepped down, who is going to take that place to now participate in that way? We also have the council governance model, which we talked about interesting things like should there be an even or odd number of people in the council? And then the last one, I think, let me pull that up. I think it is uh, community. Yeah, the community governance model. And that one's a little more uh, freeform. So these are all different ways of possibly arranging and solving that problem. And there's a lot of examples like, let's see how Rust did it. Let's see how OpenStack manages their organization and so on. So there's a lot of concrete stuff there. Hmm. So anyway, that's, that's yeah, pretty that's cool. Interesting. If you have a strong thought on this, and you want to participate, you know, get in there, make comments, let people know know what you're thinking. Because it's still open, it's not anything decided, right? It's it's still up in the air. So if, if you want to have a say, now is the time to make statements. Wow, it's like government working in in, in our own community. <laughs> what? Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Yeah. yeah, so this is pretty cool. I don't know where it's going to go, but I, I like that it's all laid out like this. 
my guess is it's going to go down the council model, uh, maybe with, I don't know. I think it's going to go down the council model, but we'll see. Yeah. I think that whatever they do, they, they need, they should, if there's a council, they should have to like meet together to make decisions and pass around like uh, a, a talking stick or something. Or, I yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh, we could come up with something weird that they have to follow. How about um, the uh, Python staff of power that you were carrying around? Yeah. Um, but then, the, you know, the, should it be the blue and yellow one or should it be the green and yellow one? I don't That's know. A big, that is a big question. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so, sorry, green and gold. So. People in Australia say it's gold, not yellow, but it looks yellow to me. Yeah, I definitely, I thought that stick was a big hit. Uh, I don't know if people don't know what you're talking about. What should they Google to find the stick? I think it's Pythonic Staff of Enlightenment. I don't yeah, know. Is that? Uh, that's that's got to do it. Uh, how many how many hits on Google can there be for that? <laughs> I don't know. Awesome. So the, yeah, they should have to pass that thing around. All right. Well, yeah. that's it for our items this week. You got anything extra you want to share with folks? I don't actually. Just uh Trudging along, we've got uh, a couple more testing codes out. So Yeah, very nice. How about you? I've got, of course, some Talk Python stuff queued up to be released shortly. I have been recording some courses, which are going to be awesome, and I'm very excited about them, doing a bunch of stuff in parallel. So I'll let you know when that's sort of further along. But I do have two things I want to talk about this week uh, really quickly. One is we got a, a message on Twitter, and I don't have the, the name of who sent us. This was John, actually. Uh, thanks, John, who sent us this heads up that Brian Granger, one of the guys behind IPython and Jupyter and all that stuff from the very early days, is giving a free webcast, and it's an ACM-sponsored thing. It says, Project Jupyter from computational notebooks to large-scale data science with sensitive data. So if that sounds interesting to you, uh, I put the link in there. It's this Friday, this episode probably will come out on Thursday. So you got to take action right away. If you're listening, there's probably a recording or something afterwards. You can check that out. The other thing is, you know, we talk sometimes about the popularity of Python. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to beat this one to death too much. It's not really worth its own item, but Python continues to climb yet another ranking. So the TOB index is one of the more well-respected, more long-running ways of ranking programming languages. And I think when we started this podcast, Python was either fifth or sixth i think it was sixth on this list it is now third probably because of the podcast certainly partly because of it yeah (laughs) but (laughs) that may be a very small part of more maybe it's meaningful but what's really interesting (laughs) is it's now above c plus plus c sharp javascript it's way above javascript and javascript's going down it's above ruby it's above many many things what it's not above is it is not above java or c and not only is it not above them, but it's like half. <laughs> so it's like 7.6% to C is 15.4%. It's going to be a long time, if ever, till it gets to a two or a one. But it's it's definitely uh, doing quite well. Yeah. So, yeah, what is the Tyobi index? Yeah, if you look into it, they talk about their philosophy and like where they measure stuff from and so on. I, it's been a long time since I read it, so I don't remember the details, but they do lay out where the ranking comes from. Okay, cool. Yeah, all right, well, that's it for this week. Thanks for chatting with me, Brian. Thank you. Bye. You bet. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. 
On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.